go ahead and, and uh, resume the morning's session. Um, if this talk really dovetails in some of the comments that were made earlier in the morning, and I think for many of us, uh, one of the problems that, that really plagues us is our patients who seem to be doing well virologically, but don't seem to be um, reconstituting their immune system, at least based on laboratory criteria. Um, Dr. Shacker is um, uh, a, a, a professor of um, medicine and infectious diseases, a director of the infectious disease clinic at the University of Minnesota. Um, and he really um, is sort of internationally recognized for his translational work studying in the lab why HIV causes immune depression, what are the mechanisms, and then translating that into, you know, maybe models or ideas for interventions to help restore the immune system once we've controlled uh, viremia. So it's really my pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Shacker, uh, who will talk about immune uh, reconstitution and the setting of HIV. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm going to, uh, in the next 30 minutes, review s some of what's known about immune reconstitution in people getting combination antiretroviral therapy. I'm not going to talk about iris at all. Uh, I'm going to talk more from a perspective of pathogenesis and why is it when we give our patients these drugs, they are suppressed in blood virologically, yet they don't seem to get a CD4 T cell count response in peripheral blood um, that that comes, brings them back up to normal. And there's some reason for that, and that's what we've been studying. So the first question I'd like to ask is what percentage of your patients have significant immune reconstitution with combination antiretroviral therapy, heart? What percentage? It's interesting. So 43% uh, uh, of you thought that uh, greater than 75% of your patients had significant immune reconstitution. Well, the question that I would pose back to you is what is significant? How do you define that? And that's one of the questions that I'd like to try and um, sort through. So if you look in the literature and you look and see what you should expect when you give people antiretroviral therapy with respect to change in peripheral blood CD4 T cell count, you know, there's some consistencies in it. This is a, a recent review that was um, published uh, in Developmental Immunology. And what they did was they did sort of a meta-analysis. And they looked uh, in all of the studies that looked at CD4 T-cell change in the first six months and then out over seven years, and you get this, this sort of graph. And when I plotted this out, I was really surprised because I've got a lot of patients who I've been treating for greater than seven years, and I can tell you I've got a significant number don't come anywhere near this. This is changed from baseline. So three to 400 cells after seven years of therapy. In fact, in my experience, either they're going to go up right away or they're going to go up plateau and just stay there for an extended period of time. So are there any direct studies in the literature that can help us sort this out? And um, ACTG384 is just extraordinarily informative in a number of ways. But um, this is a group of patients uh, and this was their CD4 T cell uh, change. And you can, you can see, it's hard for me to see from this angle, but there's that plateau, there, uh, initial increase. And then you can squint your eyes and say, gee, maybe that's plateauing out over 102 years. 
But look at the um, lines around that. Look at the variability around that. So there are still a significant number of patients that are way down here and are not reconstituting. So let me ask you then, what is a significantly, I'm sorry, a clinically significant increase in peripheral blood CD4 T cell count in patients with combination antiretroviral therapy? And clinically in this case is going to mean a clinical benefit. So you've done a study, you've identified certain clinical endpoints, and you can say that this percent increase with antiretroviral therapy affords the patient a clinical benefit. Most of you got it right. So um, there are two reasonable studies that use clinical endpoints that showed a change of 50 to 100 cells with combination antiretroviral therapy over any period of time um, uh, is associated with a clinical benefit. Well, what percentage of people don't get that? So if you ask the question, what percentage of people that you put on antiretroviral therapy do not achieve that minimum of 50 to 100 cells um, over follow-up, this is a study of two to uh, 2,500 patients. Um, uh, uh, and I forget, it was, I forget which network this was. But they were all put on the same regimen, followed for 24 months, uh, 2,500 patients. And we just went into the database and said, okay, how many of these patients failed to have a 50 to 100 cell increase? And we divided it into those that had every single time point with an undetectable plasma viral load. And this lower line here are those people who had one or two um, uh, or persistent, I guess. Uh, and the answer is 20%. So 20% of people who you put on antiretroviral therapy either have no increase, significant increase in, in uh, CD4 T cell count, or it actually goes down. And we've all seen patients like that. I had a slide here to ask you what you think a normal CD4 count on antiretroviral therapy is, and I took it out because it's, it's just too controversial. Um, but this is a study, uh, and I put this in here just to make a point. This is uh, years of suppressive heart, and they say that 40% of patients with a Nader CD4 under 200 fail to achieve a normal CD4 T cell count even after 10 years of viral suppression. And here they're defining normal as 500 cells. Um, if I started at 1,000, then 500 is abnormal for me. There are patients who have a normal, there are patients who are HIV uninfected, presumably immunocompetent, whose CD4 T cell count can, you know, depending on the lab, it'll vary around 400 or so, but the vast majority, you know, are going to be in the 1,000 range. So I think we've set our bar just a little low. If, if we think of this as normal, I, I, I don't think that those people are immunologically normal, and I'll tell you why. I'll show you why. Well, in order to understand this process, I'm going to have to take you back to the anatomy of HIV infection and the pathophysiology of HIV infection and talk about what is actually occurring in the tissues where HIV replicates, secondary lymphatic tissues, where HIV actually replicates, and where the population of CD4 T cells that that person relies on for immunocompetence exists. So when you look in peripheral blood, only 2% of your CD4 T cells are in peripheral blood. 98% are in the lymphoid tissues. That's secondary lymph nodes or the gut. 45 to 50% of your CD4 T cells are in your gut at any given time. 
So let's look at the secondary lymph nodes and find out what is going on there and see if we can understand why when people get put on therapy, the, the, uh, the cells don't come back into peripheral blood. And where we're going to focus is on this parafollicular area here, the uh, parafollicular T-cell zone. Um, and so you all remember from basic anatomy uh, that, you know, the lymph node, if you, if you bivalve it like that, then you look, these are the B-cell follicles. Um, and uh, right in between the B-cell follicles is the area called the T-cell zone, the parafollicular T-cell zone, where, most H where most CD4 T-cells can be found. This is a... A section of a lymph node taken from a person who's not HIV-infected. It's stained with antibodies against CD4. And this is what a, a person who's immunocompetent should look like. This is that T-cell zone, the parafollicular T-cell zone I was telling you about. This is what it looks like on a, with HIV. And this is true in, virtually, in most individuals that I've studied over the years. So there is a profound depletion in the size of the CD4 T-cell population in the lymphatic tissue. And when you go ahead and do quantitative image analysis and actually count the cells or measure what the size of the population is, and we look in lymph node, then we go to the gut, and we go to the terminal ileum and look in the Peyer's patch. So the terminal ileum is the largest aggregation of lymphoid cells in the gut. So we go there and we look in the, uh, the inductive site of the Peyer's patch. And then we go to the uh, lamina propria, the effector site, where the, the um, um, memory cells, memory CD4 T cells are. So when we measure the size of the populations in those um, tissues, in virtually every patient, they're depleted by at least 50%, all right, by 50%. And this is usually by the time they walk through the door with um, acute infection. Well, if you put people on heart, what, uh, what happens to that population of CD4 T cells in the tissues? And this is a study that was published several years ago now in 2002, and uh, these, this was a large collection of 40 or 50 patients who had been given act, highly active antiretroviral therapy for two years, 24 months, and then everybody had a lymph node biopsy after 24 months. And I don't have the peripheral blood viral load data here, but everybody was fully suppressed, and many had a decent response in their peripheral blood. But the point is, is that if you look by CD4 staining, this, is, this was 25% of the group that we studied, 25%, 25%, and 25% brown as a CD4 T cell here, 25%. And this was 50% of normal. So even after two years of therapy, we didn't find any evidence for reconstitution in the lymphatic tissues. Uh, and this is true in gut as well. So what are the compartmental changes uh, of the CD4 T cell population with antiretrovirals? So um, uh, this is peripheral blood, this is lymph node, this is Peyer's patch, and this is lamina propria. Black are patients who are HIV, are people who are HIV uninfected. Um, this light gray are people with HIV infection at time zero when they're starting antiretroviral therapy. And this is after six months of antiretroviral therapy. And we don't see any evidence for a significant change in the lymphatic tissues after six months of therapy with respect to the size of the CD4 T cell population. Well, so what? Um, so here is data that is looking at the increased life expectancy in the heart era. Um, you've all seen this. This is the early heart era. This is the late heart era. But the point remains that even with this tremendous change in the uh, mortality curves from the pre-heart era, these folks still 
have a significant decrease in life expectancy over population-based controls. And I would put forth to you that part of the reason for that is this, that yes, while we suppress, we fully suppress CD4 T cells, and yes, in some patients we get a really nice reconstitution in peripheral blood, that in all likelihood mirrors what's going on here. I can't tell you that for sure. But in the vast majority of patients who have sort of that stuttering course I was telling you about, they get a slow increase and then they sort of plateau, this is the problem, I think. So, and then what's the clinical consequence of this? So early on, it was really easy to do these studies because patients were getting opportunistic infections like pneumocystis, et cetera. That's no longer true. But now, I would put forth to you that we've got a large population of patients with good access to antiretroviral therapy whose peripheral blood viral load is fully suppressed, and yet they're now coming in with uh, things like colon cancer, lung cancer, interestingly enough, mucosal-associated malignancies, and also Hodgkin's lymphoma, B-cell lymphomas, and that sort of thing. So we're starting to see some, and, and this is all in patients who are 20 and 30 years old. I've had uh, four or five patients now with really high-grade colon cancers, and they're 30 to 40 years old. You just wouldn't expect to see that. And so I put forth to you that it's possible that because, even though they're on antiretroviral therapy, they have not reconstituted fully their, their lymphatic tissues, and so they've lost immune surveillance, or they, have they still have impaired immune surveillance. Good enough to get by, but over the long haul, not sufficient. Well, what are barriers to immune reconstitution? And this is all taken from the literature. Um, the older you are, the less likely you are to have a, uh, a complete, and this is all in peripheral blood the less likely you are to have a vigorous reconstitution. And that makes sense if you think about it. As you get older, you have thymic involution. Bone marrow is not cranking out as much as it used to. You know, immune system isn't as fully, isn't, doesn't have the capacity that it did when, when we were younger. And so that sort of makes sense. Peak viral load. So the higher your viral load at any given time, the less likely you are to reconstitute. And that may speak to just target cell availability, et cetera. Uh, the Nader CD4 uh, is very important. Immune activation, a previous AIDS diagnosis, which I think just speaks to this idea of Nader CD4, and then the regimen that you're put on. Of course, that data speaks to earlier regimens. We're not as fully uh, able to reconstitute as some of the regimens that we have now or not as associated with it. And this is just some of the data called from the literature to show that. So this is age um, in... Uh, 30 to 40, 40 to 50 year olds, 50 to 60 year olds, and then uh, change in uh, um, CD4, or CD4 T cell count of greater than 100 cells with antiretroviral therapy. And this is the older individuals. This is the younger individuals. Um, and you can see that there is that statistically significant difference. Stage of disease. Now, this is data, again, that we published several years ago, but I want to make the point that I'm not thinking about peripheral blood. I'm thinking about the lymphatic system thinking about secondary lymph nodes, and I'm thinking about the gut. So if you ask the question, if you start therapy in the acute stage of infection, if you start in the chronic or in the late stage of infection, can you get any difference in the ability of the CD4 T cell population to reconstitute in lymphatic tissues? And it turns out that the answer is yes, but it's only in lymph node, not in gut, and only if you start therapy in the acute stage of infection. Otherwise, we don't see, and these numbers are fairly large, uh, and this achieved statistical significance. So um, the earlier you start therapy, with, if your goal is to reconstitute immunity in the, in the 
um, lymphoid tissues, um, you need to start pretty early during acute infection. That's what this data would suggest. All right. So why is all of this happening? What's wrong with the lymphatic system that you can't repopulate your tissues with CD4 T cells? I want to go and really focus you in on this one. This has been talked about in the literature for some time, this idea of immune activation um, preventing or being associated with impaired um, uh, CD4 T cell recovery. And by immune activation, what we mean is that the T cells, if you look in the lymphatic system, if you look in peripheral blood, and you look at the activation status of the T cells, or if you, yeah, um, there is a higher percentage of these cells that are in cell cycle. There are a higher percentage of these cells that are activated. So they're going from a phenotype of resting, of, of a naive phenotype or a central memory phenotype, all the way into an effector phenotype, and then onto an apoptotic pathway. So these are cells that are becoming activated. And we know that when we give people antiretroviral therapy, prior to giving them therapy, there's, you know, if you look in the tissues, I, I apologize, I don't have it in here. If you look in the tissues, there's just sheets of these activated cells in the uh, in lymph node, for example. You put them on therapy, and the activation status will come down, but it will not normalize. So in people who are on therapy whose plasma viral load is undetectable, they do not normalize activation status of their CD4 T cells. Well, I do have it in here. Well, I told you, now I'll show you. Um, so uh, this is staining with KI67. So that's, an act, that's a marker of activation. These are all T cells. If they're brown, they're activated. This is a secondary lymph node. There's a remnant of a follicle. Um, and you can see just these sheets of, of uh, uh, KI67 staining uh, T cells. After a month of therapy, you see that there's a massive reduction. And the follicle is, in this particular uh, animal, the follicle is reformed, or there's a formed follicle, et cetera. But this is still not normal. And um, some very nice data from Peter Hunt and his uh, uh, colleagues here in San Francisco. When they looked at antiretroviral suppressed patients, um, they have persistently abnormal T cell uh, activation. <laughs> Excuse me. So here's HIV uninfected people. And this is the important one here. This is HIV-positive people on antiretroviral therapy with a viral load that's undetectable in peripheral blood or in plasma, and they still have a significant increase in their um, um, activation status. So it doesn't normalize for some reason. I think we need to go back and, uh, to the lymph nodes and to the tissues and ask, why is that? Why would it not normalize, and what's the consequence of that? So this is in situ hybridization uh, for HIV RNA. So we put probe over the tissue. It will hybridize the cells or areas of the, the tissue that have a, a large amount of HIV RNA attached to them. Uh, and then, um, so here's a B cell follicle. And you can see that there's a lot of HIV RNA that's been, uh, that's expressed or that is in the B cell follicle. And here are the individual positive cells out in the parafollicular T cell zone. Um, so this is looking in a with a particular microscope, looking with epipolarized light. If I just look through a light microscope, this is what I see, these black silver grains accumulating over um, these cells. And in this case, I've counterstained with antibodies to CD4. And so this is a CD4 T cell that's expressing HIV RNA. And most of us would say this is productive infection. The cell is kicking out HIV RNA. Well, how often do you see that in the treated individual? Not often. 
in some cases. Here's a patient who had been on therapy for five or six years. We were doing a treatment interruption study um, and looking in the inguinal lymph node and in the terminal ileum, we pretty easily found cells that continued to express HIV RNA, or, or I'm sorry, that had HIV RNA expressed from them. Now, whether these were cells that had been latently infected and that cell became activated and started expressing virus, or whether there was persistent replication, I don't want to go there. But I, I can tell you that, you know, it's not uncommon that we see this in the tissues when we look at fully suppressed individuals. But the point is, is that if you've got ongoing activation of cells, and we can find evidence for whether they're reactivating or whatever, this might be one of the triggers that keeps that process going. Um, we have also found simultaneous measure, I, when we look in, especially gut, associated lymphoid tissues, so the gut, um, and we look at day zero and, and month six, and we just measure HIV DNA in the cells, um, we and others now have published that um, for whatever reason you see an increase in the amount of DNA um, in the gut. Sarah Palmer and a number of people have used single copy assays and other uh, very sensitive, ultra-sensitive techniques to show that um, low-level viremia is common in patients with continuous antiretroviral therapy, and it could be bursts of viremia that, that you know, patient, the, the virus replica, uh, reactivating from latency or some other process. But the point is, is that it is possible to find this. So ongoing replication or reactivation from latency is a very potent trigger of this immune activation, these CD4, CD8 T cells that are expressing activation markers. Another cause uh, that we've talked about extensively is this process of microbial translocation. So here's a, the gut of uh, the rectum, actually, of one of my patients. And I'm just pointing out um, in this um, um, uh, these, um, crypt uh, that there is an infiltration of neutrophils um, and there's a crypt abscess here. Now, I don't have co-localizing with any virus or anything like that to say why is there an abscess in this crypt, but it points out these breaks in the epithelial barriers in the gut that have been described by many people with HIV in, or with uh, uh, looking at people with HIV infection. And when you measure soluble CD14 or LPS, lipopolysaccharide, Danny Duick and Jason Brenchley published this many years ago now and showed that there's this increase in these products from gram-negative cell walls um, that you can see in people, uh, in the peripheral blood of people as they progress to AIDS. And this is a very potent stimulator of cellular activation. So we could find many causes of why people with fully suppressed HIV in the plasma have this immune activation. Peter Hunt and others, again, here in San Francisco, have looked at CMV reactivation. Very common. It happens in people who are HIV uninfected, CMV infected. A lot of us are. And you can intermittently find bursts of viral replication from CMV. That also is associated with increased activation. So there's all of these reasons why um, cell, T cells might become activated. Well, there's, there's an end organ pathology that's associated with that that becomes very relevant and germane to our discussion of immune reconstitution. So this is a, a patient of mine who had AIDS, and this is her uh, 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 inguinal lymph node. Um, here's a B-cell follicle remnant, and this is the parafollicular T-cell zone. And what you'll notice that's striking and extraordinarily abnormal is the accumulation of these blue tissues, of this tissue that's staining blue with a trichrome stain 
all throughout the parafollicular T-cell zone. That's collagen. So trichrome stains collagen. This is fibrosis. This is a scar tissue, scar basically, that's formed in this parafollicular T-cell zone. We had never seen this before. This has not been described um, uh, when we first um, uh, noted this. There's only one other pathologic condition where this process is identified in lymph nodes, and that is um, nodular sclerosing um, lymphoma. And that is a very focal uh, process. It only occurs in one node that's got tumor in it. This is a process that we've now shown happens throughout its systemic, throughout all the lymph nodes in the body. Well, okay, if you have this process of fibrosis that occurs here, and it's from inflammation, I, we could go into the mechanism of why this happens, but it does happen. Um, there's, a, there's a consequence to this. If you put a scar down here, it's going to disrupt the architecture and the anatomy of that tissue. And that's what we're showing here. So um, this is the uh, parafollicular T-cell zone. It's made up of a meshwork of fibers. So it's called the fibroreticular network. It's literally a spider web that connects all of the vessels it connects the T-cell zone to the B-cell follicle. It connects it to the capsule of the lymph node. And when you look on, with silver stain on just the cut section, all of these black fibers here are fibroreticular cells that have made this network. These, this network is critical for the survival of the CD4 T-cell. This network makes IL-7, a homeostatic uh, uh, cytokine that, that T-cells need to survive. This network is where... T cells crawl along it to meet up with antigen-presenting cells. If they don't meet up on this network, you're not going to have an immune response that's functional. It just won't happen. So this network, the structure of this network, becomes critical to the survival of T cells and to the formation of immune responses. And yet I just told you, look what's happening in this area where the network is um, uh, supposed to be. And so when you do the silver stain in people with HIV infection, this is what the network looks like. It's completely decimated. And this is true for virtually every single uh, person with HIV that I've studied and most animal uh, and uh, monkeys with SIV that I've studied. This network just basically goes away. And that's a, that has real pathologic consequence, I think, um, in HIV infection. Well, so if you model it, this is what it would look like. Here's the T cell zone. Um, here's the capsule. Here are these specialized vessels. And um, this is the fibroreticular cell network, these black lines, but it's being interrupted by all of this collagen formation. And so these cells can't meet up with each other, and these cells can be trapped out in this matrix, this collagen matrix, and they can't get up to what's left of the network for survival. And that's what this picture is showing. So this is, this is actually SIV infection uh, in a, a rhesus macaque. But what we've done is um, this is an uninfected animal, and we've stained CD4 cells, or CD3 cells, um, blue. Uh, areas that have collagen is red. And Desmond, a marker of the FRC network, is green. Now, here you'll see that the, cola, you'll see that the uh, green and red make yellow because a normal healthy fiber has some collagen that's got Desmond overlying it. So here you see this nice structure with all these Desmond fibers and the T cells in intimate contact with it. They're able to get the nutrients they need to survive. They're able to meet up with their antigen-presenting cells, et cetera. This is in chronic HIV or SIV infection, and you can see that this whole area is taken over with collagen, and these T cells have no chance 
of being able to come into contact with what's left of the network. And what we've shown and just recently published is that this process correlates beautifully with decline in CD4 T cell count, increase in apoptosis, decline in the levels of IL-7 in this tissue. So we've developed this model. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, and we've known uh, by studying this that if you quantitate the amount of fibrosis that's in the lymph node, and we've done this now, uh, if you quantitate, you just ask the question, what happens to their CD4 T cell count over 36 months? And it turns out that this is an, actually a pretty good predictor of who's going to reconstitute CD4 T cells in peripheral blood. So the more collagen, the more scar tissue you have in your lymphoid organs, the less likely you are to reconstitute CD4 T cells. So you have this, this, this model that we've, that we've been working on um, to ask the question, what happens to T cells? in people with HIV infection. And if you look at viral replication, be it reactivation from latency, be it ongoing replication, other infections like CMV, herpes simplex, et cetera, or microbial translocation, all of that leads to inflammation. All of that leads to this chronic immune activation that's just enough to set up an inflammatory state in the lymphatic tissues that causes this cumulative deposition of collagen that, you know, when you have that collagen in there, it de destroys the network. You lose IL-7, you lose uh, CD4 T cells to apoptosis, and you lose the cells that are going to reform the network and try and make things healthy, the lymphotoxin beta cells. So um, you have this sort of vicious cycle that's going on because of this. Well, um, gee, that's depressing. What can we do about this? So, you know, I, 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 a lot of what I'm showing you here is, I mean, we've, we've published a lot of these models and we validated a lot of this stuff, um, but it's all been an SIV infection. Um, you know, all of the natural history data that I've shown you has been in humans with HIV infection. But it raises the point, okay, we've all talked about this idea that HIV is, an, is a disease of inflammation. Once you start treating people, it becomes an inflammatory disease. And that sort of changes your, your perspective. And you go, well, are there ways that we can address inflammation that are going to improve immune reconstitution? One thing that you could do that we've been working on if you could block this, if you could block collagen formation, um, that might have an impact on, on uh, T cell recovery. So I'm going to show you one slide that's unpublished data. It's not in your handout because it's under review. Um, and there's a drug called perfenidone. It's made, um, uh, it's, it's licensed in Japan and Europe and India for the treatment of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. It is a TGF-beta inhibitor. It is not licensed in this country. Um, and we've shown mechanistically that the, the driving force of this collagen formation is, is TGF-beta. And so what I did, I've got a very large monkey study going. And um, it, this is a very artificial construct, but it was just to prove the point. If I give these animals perfenidone and then I infect them with SIV, so that never happens in real life. I get that. And, and the reviewers actually got it too, so... We're doing more work. Um, but it was just to prove the point that if I give the animal perfenidone and then infect them, can I protect CD4 T cells? Can I protect the network, et cetera, from this collagen and therefore with the, from the CD4 T cell um, depletion? And this is, I believe, collagen. And in the animals that got perfenidone, they had significantly, they had no change in collagen from baseline. Uh, and in the animals that didn't get perfenidone, they had the significant increase in collagen. And this translated actually into a very significant CD4 T cell benefit. So just focus up here. The animals, the, and we started antiretrovirals here. 
um, the animals that did not get profenadone had uh, uh, just a continued downward trend in their CD4 T cell count, and the animals that did get profenadone um, had a much better CD4 recovery when antiretrovirals were begun. So when we talk about barriers to immune reconstitution, okay, I can't do anything about age. I'd like to, but I can't. Uh, peak viral load, it is what it is. We could start patients on therapy earlier, uh, similar with the Nader CD4. But if we're going to talk about adjunctive therapies in an effort to improve immune reconstitution, then I think where we really need to focus our efforts is on immune activation. And, you know, I've shown you just one tantalizing little piece of data in an area that we're working on with respect to collagen formation. But there's all kinds of talks, uh, there's all kinds of ideas out there about um, uh, other anti-inflammatories, PD-1 antibodies, I mean, you name it. There's just a ton of stuff that's being talked about. And that's really, I think, with respect to the new, you know, the new front. I think that's one of the areas that you're going to start seeing a lot of information on. Um, so with that, I'll close. And I know uh, Priscilla's going to probably uh, talk about some of these similar things as well. But I really want to leave you with the idea that this is a disease, uh, once you put people on therapy, in my view, this is a disease of immune activation and inflammation. And we're starting to see some clinical consequences of that. Uh, one is this idea of frailty with our patients living longer. They, they're becoming more frail, um, more, there's associated with significant weakness. But also now we're starting to see these unusual malignancies and those kinds of things. And I would put to you that it's, it's because we have not been able to accomplish significant immune reconstitution, um, and that's why patients are, are uh, acting the way they are. With that, I'll stop. I actually didn't appreciate that this was going the other direction. Um, so. Okay. I'll take questions. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Okay. Okay, so Dr. Um, Shacker, uh, due to circumstances beyond his control, has, Delta. A, Delta. has a cab waiting for him that leaves in four minutes. So I'm going to take some questions, um, if you've got questions, but I'm going to try to um, focus uh, the questions and, and the answers as well. Um, I guess, the, I mean, I think this is an incredibly important and a great background for what we hope will, in fact, translate. Um, and I guess, you know, to, to clinical practice, there have been a lot of studies looking at some anti-inflammatory drugs, uh, and, you know, uh, aspirin-containing, all this kind of stuff. Is there anything that we can do, or should we just keep wait um, to, to see what transpires? Yeah, there are no clinical trials that I'm aware of um, with, you know, that, that would approach a, um, an inflammatory, that would use something that would be considered anti-inflammatory in HIV infection that had a significant impact at this point. That's not to say that, that you know, people haven't thought about it. And, and if you go back, uh, I remember when I was a fellow in 1990, and these docs given everybody aspirin and just convinced that they did better uh, when they gave them aspirin. I, I, now I come back to that and think, gee, that's kind of interesting. Um, but the problem is, especially when you're thinking about immunotherapies for HIV, the problem is, is that you've got to consider your target. What is it that you're trying to change? Because if you get too broad of a target, if you come in with too big of a hammer, steroids, for example, you can do your patients a huge disservice. The reason we chose profenadone is, first of all, nobody thinks it's a, you know, it's a really potent antifibrotic, and it's a TGF-beta inhibitor. It's a very selective, it, it leaves its footprint in a very selective place. 
So if you're going to interrupt this process and you're using anti-inflammatory therapies, I think we have to, we as a community have to think really hard about what target we want to go after and how badly do we want to go after it. This TGF-beta inhibitor, when, uh, when the IPF folks in an, in a, uh, interstitial pulmonary fibrosis gave people uh, antibodies to TGF-beta as a treatment for uh, IPF, patients came in with these hyperproliferative lesions all over their body. So it's bad when you completely shut off TGF-beta. And that's, that's what we're concerned about with some of these things. Sorry. The, the, that's great. The, the time course, these changes structurally, is this an argument for earlier treatment for HIV? I mean, do we have a, is there a window of six months or a year? You, you talked about declining yeah. C4s. Uh, and then the other issue is, are, are there some HIV drugs as a class that may have some additional anti-inflammatory properties in addition to their antiviral? Um, with respect to timing of treatment, uh, you know, I, I, I'm just going to say yes. I think the earlier you start people on therapy, the more likely you are to have a, a better immunologic response. And I, I define that as number of cells, but also function. Um, with respect to the anti-inflammatory properties of antiretrovirals, I'm just not aware. Are you aware, Chip? What, I mean, they talk about AZT, but I'm not aware that there are any. Yeah. I mean, there was interest in, in Maraviroc and CD4 no. cell rises. I don't know right. if that correlated. Some of the studies were not very encouraging. We're, we're looking at Maraviroc yeah. now, but, but I don't have any data. Okay. And then the last question has to do with a lot of our patients come in saying, what should I be eating? What about antioxidants? What about whatever? I mean, there's a lot of theory out there. Yeah. Um, based on the data that I have, you know, I, I, I could not give a recommendation that you should alter your diet, you know, based on the processes that we've looked at and, um, you know, the goal of improving immune reconstitution. So I, I just can't speak to that with the data that we have. Okay. Well, again, I want to thank you. I'm sorry to, to truncate the, the time for questions, but I want you to get on your plane. So. Uh, thank you very much thank for you. a stimulating discussion.